welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. Hello and welcome back. Today on Legally Brief, we are discussing educational institutions and how they impact individuals that have learning differences. So this morning, I'm recording with a combination of, I think, allergies and getting over a little bit of a cold. So I definitely sound nasally and you'll excuse me in advance for when I clear my throat. Around where I live near the Jersey Shore, spring has definitely arrived I woke up this morning, opened the blinds, and the sun was beaming in. Although we had a threat of a spring storm, there's no denying with the tulips, the daffodils showing. So that has me feeling really great. It's a Friday as I record this. My kids are off from spring break. And one thing I would love is if they would meet me for dinner. I don't know if that will happen, but I'm just excited to talk to you about this topic, which is close to my heart. It's something that I know well. I have had clients that I've worked with that have had learning differences. They've been in the need for 504 plans, which is an educational plan where they receive certain accommodations, also individualized education programs or IEPs. It's very prevalent. There's probably someone in your family or a student that you know that has a learning difference. You will notice that as throughout this conversation that we have today, I do not refer to learning differences or someone that has dyslexia, dysgraphia, or any other neurodiversity as a disability. In fact, this conversation is going to ask you to start to remove that word from your vocabulary in a very similar fashion as we no longer use such offensive words as retarded, crippled. We need to remove that word when we talk about people that have differences in the styles and in the ways that they process information. I don't like that disability even assigned to any, the word disability assigned to anyone. It assumes that the person is not able and it lessens their value. It turns them into another. So we're celebrating spring. In April, there's also a tradition, maybe not as well known, as, as we celebrate spring and some of the religious holidays, it is National Kindergarten Day and also Library Day. So we are recognizing the importance of education. I attended the early 
portions of my academic career in preschools, in elementary, the first part of elementary, in a school, J. Enos Ray, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., a neighborhood called Tacoma Park, Maryland. It was just miles from the Capitol. My father at the time, my father and my mother were both educators. My father was a newly minted professor of history and African-American studies. He was working as an associate professor, probably more like a graduate student, some type of position at Howard University. And he received a job offer from a small Christian college, Seventh-day Adventist College in Huntsville, Alabama, now known as Oakwood University. We moved with my father's job to Huntsville, Alabama. And those early memories of school were not the greatest. In fact, they were quite dark. I started school at five years old, always the youngest person in the class. And some of the visuals that I remember from that time is the pink walls, you know, the pink tile walls and the poor lighting and that industrial cleaner that so many institutions use. Maybe they get it wholesale, but they use to clean the bathrooms and the classrooms for the kids. But I just remember that. I had so many prominent smells and scents and visuals in my mind. I missed most of all when I started school so young. And I'm sure it's because my parents, my mom had to go back to work. I missed the large outdoors. I was such, and still am, a highly visual person. I remember that during that time when we were in Tacoma Park, going to the tennis courts, going to the library, nothing made me happier than the sky as my ceiling and the grass as my floor. When I went to school, I missed being able to run outside, ask nonstop questions. I'm sure I wore my mother. I'm sure I wore her out, just nonstop questions. Well, of course, when you're in a more controlled environment in kindergarten and preschool, you have to limit your questions, sit still, be quiet. One of the other early memories that I have is when you had to line up and we drank from this rusty water fountain. We were told you had to stand still, you can't move. That to me was torture, absolute torture. I was fidgety as a child. And then during preschool, not so much in first grade, but in pre-K, which I guess would have been pre-K at the time, I remember that we had to take naps on these round, this orange shag carpet. It was awful. I would sneeze uncontrollably from the dust and from the, the carpeting. And for a snack, we were given marshmallow cookies that were covered in chocolate. And they were disgusting. To this day, even looking at a marshmallow gives me chills. Instead, I missed the snacks that my parents would give me when I was at home, including mangoes, Julie mangoes, apples, peaches, plums. Those were the things that I missed. So that's a little bit about my transition from home to the first early school experience. And then arriving in school and now being characterized in different groups, in different settings, the compulsory learning Children know how to learn. They know what to learn and when to learn. The one thing, however, of course, when we're put into school is that it's now time to open the books. You're now being compared. You're being tested. And kids 
very quickly start to understand whether they fit in and whether they do not academically. Some of the things and what this conversation today is about specifically is understanding, normalizing, and accepting neurodiversity within our children and with our academic institutions. I'm at the point now in my journey where I've finished school, practicing attorney, but I have been experiencing a second time the educational rigors with my two boys. My son now is finishing up his junior year in high school. We're talking about colleges, looking at colleges. And so it reminded me of some of the struggles that I and others faced during school. And I was really impressed to have this conversation because so many people suffer in silence. So many people don't understand. And it's not that even our instructors are being intentional or being mean or being cruel. Some of them may not fully grasp how difficult it is to have these differences in this learning style, but to be ostracized, to be labeled, to be tested, and to want so very bad as students to fit in. But no matter how hard you try, you do not. Let me focus for a moment on one of the learning differences, and that is dyslexia. Here are some things that kids with dyslexia wish everyone knew. One, we need to work in a different way, not a harder way. Another child, a student with dyslexia said, being dyslexic doesn't mean I'm not really smart. One other child said, I need teachers to speak. I need my parents to speak more slowly when giving instructions. Here's another quote. Learning to read when you have dyslexia is like hitting a wall over and over again. I need you to help me get around the wall, not through it. And finally, I am not lazy. Having dyslexia means that I work hard and I don't quit. It just takes me a little longer. I have a lot of questions, but when we get it, we don't forget it. Our educational institutions historically have not known how to be inclusive, to create belonging with people, with students that have learning differences. The result of that is that there's been injury and unnecessary harm to these students, harm to their confidence, to their ability, the dropping out of these students from high school, from college. Those rates are high and they're not going down. The harmful language is something that we'll also cover. I mentioned that at the top of the show, using the word disabled, special ed, it was common when I was growing up to criticize, to ridicule, to make jokes about kids on the shorter bus. You hear comedians talk about that all the time. We'll also cover some disruptors that made changes in the educational system that we're all benefiting from. And then finally, your call to action. And I'll say that now. Your call to action is to, one, practice removing that word disabled when we refer to kids that learn differently in school. Any child, any baby that comes into this world is immediately learning. They're learning all the time. They're grasping information. They are, in every sense, perfect scientists examining, questioning, inquisitive. And that's what learning is. Learning doesn't begin when you 
park your car and drop your kid off at the front of the schoolhouse. They've been learning nonstop before that time. So that when we, they then enter the school and you say, this person can't learn, this person is a disabled learner, that comes as a stark and fatal untruth. And it causes them to believe harmful, negative stereotypes about themselves. Your call to action is to stop that. And instead, replace in your mind and your vocabulary and your thinking neurodiversity and acceptance and the ways and the learning styles of our students. Just a little bit about our school and our educational system. The history of compulsory education and our public schools, it dates back several, several years, hundreds of years. In fact, compulsory education, which is defined as requiring children to end to attend public or state accredited private schools, began as a practice in the 19th and early 20th century. Some would argue there's a couple schools of thought as to how we have this formalized educational system. But some schools of thought are that it was a way to improve literacy rates and also discourage the practice of widespread child labor. There's also individuals that would date our formalized education back to Jewish leaders and Judaic law, and even going further in cultures in Mexico in the 15th and early 16th century, we saw evidence of Mexico actually being the first nation to make education mandatory for all children. In our country, in the United States, there is some evidence that the first state to enact educational laws beginning in 1852, which allowed, and it was mostly white male boys who these laws covered, requiring them to attend some type of primary school or grammar school where they would learn reading and also basic arithmetic. Many parents at that time in Massachusetts refused to send their children to school and they were fined, even going so far as being stripped of their parental rights. In Mississippi is on record as being the last state to pass laws requiring school attendance in 1917. That's a little bit about how we came to have this formalized setting. School costs money, and that's why it's so important that schools be inclusive. There is not an election anywhere. I don't care if your state, national, federal level, what have you, that doesn't touch on education. What is this politician going to do for education, public school, taxing? That's a whole nother show. But we know that it costs. It's estimated that the we spend on average, and these numbers are old. These numbers are from the mid-2000s. But on average, we spend a little over $10,000 per student on education. So this is your money. Let's make it better. Let's make how our students feel, regardless of how they learn, whether they have dyslexia or not. Let's make it better. At this point, there's probably over 100,000 public, elementary, and secondary schools. So again, we're spending money. It's mandatory. It's part of our laws. It's a set up and established system. And this is why we have to ensure that everyone, regardless of their learning style, feels included. I had a client come in, a young athlete. She and her mom 
were seeking counsel based on abuses that she was enduring with one of her authority figures in her life, which was a coach. Part of the psychological abuse, the coach had understood and it had been confided in the coach early in the relationship that the child had dyslexia. It was important that the to the parents that the coach understood this because it directly impacted how the child, although a brilliant athlete, determined, physically fit, dedicated, it wasn't the athletic ability, but the coach needed to know that how the child processed the instructions, so say on the bars or on the vault, how instructions were given, even telling the child to line up from left or stand to the right, that impacted. So the coach taking this information, and this is an aberration in among coaches, not everyone would do this. I always make that disclaimer. But this coach used it to harm the child. And what that looked like, if the coach was frustrated or upset, there would be comments about how the child was stupid, how the child was not going to ever get past a certain event because they didn't know their left from right. They were screaming, yelling about how the child had to be told more than once in instruction that everyone got on the first. And that, I can't tell you the impact. Among the other abuses that they were discussing with me, that was the one, the coach honing in on this learning difference and way that impacted the child. That's the one abuse that the child continued to talk to me about. Moving now to what we have to do, the language. In every system that we're trying to fix, become aware of, move away from systemic failures, there's always a language within that institution and process that we have to move away from. If we're trying to fix this one flaw, uh, many would argue there's many more, but if we're trying to fix this flaw where we refer to individuals that are not traditional learners, We have to move away from the language. For example, the language in making a person feel unwelcomed, not a part and not belonging. The language of the broken educational system uses such labels as this person's smart, this person is not. We have to move away from referring to our students as lazy. We have to move away from discussing and talking about individuals as being disabled. I attended a college open house the other day. There were several academic institutions there. I asked the question about whether these very noted affluent colleges had offices of neurodiversity. They all immediately recognized what I was referring to, but then they said, we do have an office or we do have individuals that work with disabled students. When I made a point of correcting them and saying that I don't mean disabled students. I mean individuals that learn differently, process differently, or have learning differences. There wasn't necessarily a look of dismay or confusion, but there was a continued return back to the use of the word disability. Just as we no longer say such offensive words as retarded, crippled, imbecile, I hope we're saying less and less this word of being fat, Those are demeaning and derogatory words. And just like we moved away from those words, parents, family members, educators, leaders, we have to stop calling our children and our students disabled. It hurts. 
it harms, and it injures. Let's talk about some of the change makers, some of the people that are reforming the system as it relates to being accepting of neurodiversity. In a campaign by Richard Brunson, who is the founder of Virgin, he started a campaign and called it dyslexic thinking. And what he is advocating is that the dyslexic thinking be actually be recognized as a skill set classified as a valuable skill set on LinkedIn. And that it also, the term dyslexic thinking, be added to the dictionary. You've heard many times before in different, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, there's so many, Whoopi Goldberg, the entrepreneur and the millionaire from Shark Tank, Mr. Wonderful. I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. But there's so many individuals, the list goes on and on, who have self-identified that they learn with dyslexia. Because of that, there has been a definite understanding that individuals that learn with dyslexia, they do have a valuable skill. They're very entrepreneurial in nature. They have the ability to overcome obstacles, difficulties, to see things and to process and to solve problems differently. Because of that, Mr. Brunson is actually advocating that that skill be recognized and be added to our culture and our vernacular as dyslexic thinking. It's a positive. And that's really what this conversation is about. When we emphasize that this is an air that we are expanding our thinking to be more accepting, to have more diversity in our job places, in our businesses, in our academic institutions, that we look for equity, inclusion, and diversity. This is part of it. Neurodiversity is part of that conversation. Other disruptors and other individuals who have made a positive impact on bringing learning diversity, I'll tell you about a few. The first Black woman to earn a PhD in psychology, Inez Beverly Prosser, she did extensive research on integrating schools, ensuring that African-American students receive a better education, regardless of their ability and style of learning. She was passionate about this, it's written, and she used her passion to foster and educate students. She was one of the first to invest an interest also in the mental health of African-American children. You may have heard of Charles Hamilton Houston, the dean of Howard University Law School. He argued several cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and was an advocate for education and the educating of students. Mary McLeod Bethune, extremely important civil rights leader in the 20th century, a lifelong educator. She was a teacher and founder of the Bethune-Cookman College. She set the educational standard. All of these individuals in some way disrupted and brought about greater inclusion within educational institutions. Ms. Bethune went on to become the highest ranking African-American woman in Franklin Delano Roosevelt's government and was the director of Negro Affairs of the National Youth Administration, disrupting, bringing about change. That's what you can do. How do you do that? Divorcing yourself 
from the thought and the language that an individual that doesn't learn traditionally, that processes, that takes more time, asks more questions, or looks at things differently is a problem. They're disabled, special ed. I I think the kids now, they use the word sped to refer to someone that's in another class. To have a conversation with your quote unquote smart kids, let them be the defenders of individuals walking into the smaller class. Tell them not to tolerate teasing anymore. They're all going to make it out of middle school. They're all going to make it out of high school. They're going to see these individuals. And if people, disruptors like Mr. Brunson and other educators have their way, an individual who's dyslexic, who has neurodiversity, they're going to have a special skill set. So that's what you can do. We can all move away and divorce ourselves from the language that hurts, harms, and breaks students. It was, as always, a privilege having this conversation with you, how to make our institutions better. And in this case, on this episode, how to make our educational institutions work for all students, how to have neurodiversity. Until next time, I enjoyed our conversation and be well. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.